0: Hey there, buckaroos. Welcome back to 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I, I am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today, we are on question 36. And in many ways, you could consider this a sequel or a part two to last week's episode. The question for the week is, are false gods real? As we've done many times before, we're going to dark places this week. So strap on. Get ready for the ride. Here we go. If you recall, last week we came across the oldest non-biblical document that has the name Yahweh on it. And it just so happened to be really cool because the story that that document tells is a story written by a Moabite king. And that story is paralleled, or mirrored, or preempted by a biblical story. A story that comes out of 2 Kings chapter 3. And last week we brought up this story mostly to focus on this idea of a national deity that the Moabites had. And this national deity, this god of the Moabites, went by the name of Chemosh. So after recording that episode, I felt like we didn't give the text... It's due diligence. You know, we didn't really sink into that story because we're talking about Golems, we're talking about Tetragrammaton, we're talking about all these different things. But this week, I want to give the time to this story because it's a weird story. And from a strictly Christian perspective or from an evangelical perspective, let's say, or or even an Orthodox Jewish perspective, this story has some problems in it. So before we do anything else, I want to read the entirety of this story in its context so that we don't get caught up with ideas that maybe I'm cherry-picking or just that we're taking a verse here or there out of context. I'm going to read the whole chapter here, and then we're going to dive into the possible solutions or options for the apparent problem here. I should also note that the title of this episode, the question that we're revolving around, is, are false gods real, but really... For our purposes today, we can smush that down to, or make that more exacting, and simply state the question, is Chemush real? Is the Moabite deity, the national deity of the Moabite people, Chemush real? Is there something to him? Alright, I'm reading out of my personal Bible, as I tend to do on this show, which is an ESV translation. And I'm reading out of Second Kings chapter 3. And we know from lineages and genealogies of the Old Testament that this incident happens around 860 BC. Alright, here we go. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, remember last week, the extra-canonical document that talks about Yahweh was called the Mesha steel, or the Moabite stone. Mesha being the king of the Moabites that made this stone tablet. Anyway, back to the narrative. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, And he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Lambs and rams. (laughs) But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at the time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, so right there, that's the first eight verses. Just to summarize our context here, it sounds like the Moabites either had a trade deal or had to give tribute to Israel. And this was apparently a deal that had happened between Ahab, the past king of Israel, and the king of Moab either Mesha or Mesha's father. But then Ahab, king of Israel, dies. His son inherits the throne, a guy named Jehoram. And then right about then, Moab decides, hey, this trade deal, this treaty, this alliance, whatever, I don't really want to deal with it. I'm not going to give you the 100,000 lambs that I owe you. So for Israel, this is cause for war. So Israel then goes to their neighbor, Judah. And if you recall, And if you recall, after David is king over Israel, then his son King Solomon inherits the throne. After Solomon dies, the kingdom splits in two. North part becomes Israel, south part becomes Judah. And so now Israel is asking Judah to go with them into battle. They agree, and they're going to take another local king and local country, Edom, which is almost always Israel and Judah's enemy. But in this case, they're going to take Edom as an ally. All right, continuing on now from verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 3. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shephat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah, and everybody around the land would know the name Elijah. Not Elisha, his protege, but Elijah. Elijah made a big display of God's power a generation ago to Ahab, who was the king of Israel, and pretty much shut everybody's mouths about who was the real king of Israel. It was Yahweh. Anyway, moving on. So they call Elisha the prophet to them, Verse 12 And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your fathers and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. So just from that quick little interchange, we can figure out exactly where Elisha stands here. He really dislikes the king of Israel, with good cause. Ahab, the former king of Israel, who's now dead, pretty much persecuted all the prophets of Yahweh, persecuted all the good guys, specifically Elijah. And so Elijah's protege, Elisha, doesn't really trust this new king of Israel or want to have anything to do with him. But because the king of Judah is there, Jehoshaphat, which Elisha apparently does trust, he's willing to talk to the Lord, to be a prophet to these three kings in this instance. In verse 15, Elisha says, But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all streams of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom, till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites, till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in ker Seth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through, opposite the king of Edom. But they could not. Last verse, verse 27. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. End scene. Now again, we're talking about the Moabite God in this situation, Chemosh. And you'll notice his name, Chemosh, although Chemosh's name comes up quite often in the Old Testament, this passage doesn't specifically call out Chemosh by name at all. It just gives us kind of the facts on the table. So what's the problem? Why does this happen to be one of the first examples that skeptics and non-Christians use as counter-apologetics? Use as a display of how the Old Testament is errant and has contradictions. What's going on? Kind of two things. Thing one. Elisha prophesies that Judah, Israel, and Edom are going to have success. They're going to conquer Moab. They're going to fell every choice city and essentially leave no stone unturned. But this prophecy doesn't appear to happen. Ironchariots.org is one of the forerunners here in the counter-apologetics movement. They look at pieces of scripture and they try to poke holes in it, essentially. And not just the Bible, but all religions as far as I can tell. So hardline atheists or hardline skeptics from ironchariots.com look at specifically verses 18 and 19 of Elisha's prophecy and say, this is a failed prophecy. God says something's going to happen. And within the same chapter, pretty much the exact opposite happens. So they point to verses 18 and 19 of Elisha's prophecy which read, once again, Elisha says, This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. That's the prophecy. Then what happens? Almost exactly that. They're going through, they're attacking the Moabites. Moabites think that Judah, Israel, and Edom had a spat and slaughtered each other, but they didn't. Those lakes they see aren't lakes of blood. They're just regular old water lakes. And Israel and company is plowing through Moabite towns until the king, assumably, is running out of options. He's got two cards left to play. The first card is, I'm going to send 700 of my best swordsmen and try to poke a hole right through Edom's line in their offensive unit. Well, that doesn't work. Now, there's no card left but one. Mesha, the king of the Moabites sacrifices his son, most surely, to Chemosh. And the text says, for what it's worth, he does this on the wall. Now, we don't know what that means. Some interpreters take that to mean he does this sacrificial display in front of either the rest of the Moabite army or in front of Israel. Either way, however you parse it, the result, the consequence of Mesha's actions are fierce and immediate my translation says, right after the sacrifice, and there came great wrath against Israel. And Israel withdrew from him, Mesha, and returned to their own land. So Israel doesn't win. And it appears that a direct prophecy from Elisha is outdone. What 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 is that survivor line? would outmatch, outplay? Skeptics look at this passage and they say, this is a mano-a-mano situation. This is One national deity against another national deity. This is God against Chemosh. And what do you know, Chemosh comes out victorious. The God of the Bible is not as strong as the God of the Moabites. That's the reading from the skeptics. And you have to admit when you read through this, that is at least a valid option on the table here. If you're just reading this passage straightly, what takeaway are you supposed to get besides that this human sacrifice had power. Well, apparently there's a lot of other explanations that come out of scholars' brains. To boil it down from my reading of what biblical scholars tend to say about this passage, I see three options come to the surface. Okay, option one is that God causes Israel to fail in this situation. As far as I understand, the thought process is that God kind of set this all up as a trap. And that God never really wanted them to prevail over the Moabites to begin with. The problem is, you know, that seems to be reading a lot into the passage, right? There's no mention in the passage that God was, you know, setting a trap for Israel here. Seems to be quite the opposite. You have Elisha prophesying success. You have a miracle of water coming out of the desert. And why would there be success until the moment of human sacrifice? Why would God react? To that, by that being the impetus to punish Israel. That doesn't hold a lot of sway to me. Now, option two, at least on the surface, maybe has a little more validity. And that argument goes that verse 27 doesn't say that wrath came upon Israel from Chemosh, or doesn't say that the human sacrifice itself, you know, caused the Moabites to grow extra muscles or anything of that nature. But rather, either the king doing this to his son. Just made the Moabites fight with more fervor. Like, look at how far our king is willing to go. This is existential death for Moabite people or victory today. We're fighting till the very last man now because there's no future. The king just killed his inheritance. Or that the king does this and he does this in front of the opposing armies, and the opposing armies look up and are intimidated, like, whoa, this dude's super crazy. Let's get out of here. Now, the key to this interpretation appears to me to be on this Hebrew word that talks about the response that happens after the human sacrifice. So there's a translation of the Bible called the NET, the New English Translation, and it was just done in 2005, and it's one of these, like, online efforts, as far as I understand, where thousands of different Hebrew and Koine Greek scholars came together to try to have a new, very good translation of the Old Texts utilizing all the newest tools and newest information on the scene. So I'll read the verse in question from the NET translation, and then there's some notes uh, in the NET commentary that I'd like to read that go along with that. All right, so here's verse 27. So he took, that's Mesha again, his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him up as a burnt sacrifice on the wall. There was an outburst of divine anger against Israel. So they broke off the attack and returned to their homeland. So the clause, outburst of divine anger, is the Hebrew words we really want to take a microscope to. So here's what the commentary has to say. The meaning of this statement is uncertain, for the subject of the anger is not indicated. Except for two relatively late texts, the noun Ketsif refers to an outburst of divine anger. But it seems unlikely that the Lord would be angry with Israel, for he placed his stamp of approval on the campaign. See verses 16 through 19. D.N. Friedman suggests the narrator, who obviously has a bias against the Omrad dynasty, included this observation to show that the Lord would not allow the Israelite king to, quote, have an undiluted victory. Some suggest the original source identified Chemosh, the Moabite god, as the subject, and that his name was later suppressed by a conscientious scribe. But this proposal raises more questions than it answers. Okay, so you kind of see all three of our potential options here on the table in this little uh, NET note. One, that God didn't want an undiluted victory, I think is saying God hated the current line of kings so much in Israel that he wasn't willing to just give them a complete and utter success. But looking at these three options, even if that's the case, even if God said, I don't like Israel that much, I'm not going to give them a complete success. Why would it be directly after this human sacrifice that God makes that decision? There's not a verse in between the human sacrifice and the divine wrath or the divine anger that comes against the Israelites. To me, I read this, and the simplest way to explain the situation at hand is that that divine anger or that divine wrath that falls on the Israelites is directly connected to the human sacrifice event. And since what we know of God is that he detests human sacrifice, don't we have to point the finger that surely it's the Moabite god, Chemosh? When I started contemplating this along these lines of maybe Chemosh isn't just a false god, but he's got some reality to him, he's got something going on for him, I immediately thought of the Ten Commandments. Right here are the first two commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 1. You shall have no other gods before me, numbering mine. 2. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. Them. You shall not bow down to them. There's something in that language that has always rubbed me in a certain way to think God's not just talking about carved wooden images that don't have anything behind them. There's maybe something more in play here. But, lest you think that I'm completely biased, there are passages like this. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God states very clearly there. There's nobody else. It's me and me alone. Hence why we call Judaism a monotheistic religion. But then we start thinking about this, and maybe there's another solution. What if Chemush isn't a god, he's just a demon disguising himself as a god? And this next little divot we're going to follow here, I think I've mentioned before, but only in brief, but we're going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit further here. A few years back, I read the book The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. And this one specific small little chapter, it's a small book, but this one little chapter leaped off the page to me, because it made me think about things in a way I never presumed to think about them. And C.S. Lewis, who we'll talk about a little bit later, when reading this book and other Chesterton books, he said that Chesterton baptized his intellect, and that The Everlasting Man was the best book of lay persons' apologetics out there that he knew of. So... Chesterton writes this book as more or less a rebuttal to a work that the famous author H.G. Wells just penned. And Wells, besides being, you know, a famous sci-fi writer, was also in love with history. And Wells wrote this book that essentially tried to look at a history of humanity, and more or less tried to make the argument that humanity is just an evolved animal. And Wells tried to use all these points from history to, you know, satisfy that argument. So in response to that, Chesterton writes this book, The Everlasting Man. And in particular, I want to read these two paragraphs from the end of a chapter in his book called The War of the Gods and Demons. That's the name of the chapter. And the whole chapter goes into detail about why man would ever fight a war. And why peasants, why not kings, but the actual men fighting in the trenches, why they would dare to risk their lives for all these petty little things that kings and queens over the generations have wanted, or have fought wars for. And then he hones in on the Punic Wars, the battle between Rome and the Carthaginians. So with that context, I quote, Carthage fell because she was faithful to her own philosophy and had followed out to its logical conclusion her own vision of the universe. Molech had eaten his children. The gods had risen again and the demons had been defeated after all, but they had been defeated by the defeated and almost defeated by the dead. Nobody understands the romance of Rome and why she rose afterwards to a representative leadership that seemed almost faded and fundamentally natural. Who does not keep in mind the agony of horror and humiliation through which she had continued to testify to the sanity that is the soul of Europe? She came to stand alone in the midst of an empire because she had once stood alone in the midst of a ruin and a waste. After that, all men knew in their hearts that she had been representative of mankind, even when she was rejected of men. And there fell on her the shadow from a shining and as yet invisible light and the burden of things to be. It is not for you to guess in what manner or moment the mercy of God might in any case have rescued the world, but it is certain that the struggle which established Christendom would have been very different if there had been an empire of Carthage instead of an empire of Rome. We have to thank the patience of the Punic Wars if... In After Ages, divine things descended at least upon human things and not inhuman. Europe evolved into its own vices and its own impotence, as will be suggested on another page. But the worst into which it evolved was not like what it had escaped. Can any man in his senses compare the great wooden doll, whom the children expected to eat a little bit of the dinner, with the great idol who would have been expected to eat the children? That is the measure of how far the world went astray, compared with how far it might have gone astray. If the Romans were ruthless, it was in a true sense to an enemy, and certainly not merely a rival. They remembered not trade routes and regulations, but the faces of sneering men, and hated the hateful soul of Carthage. And we owe them something if we never needed to cut down the groves of Venus exactly as men cut down the groves of Baal. We owe it partly to their harshness that our thoughts of our human past are not wholly harsh, if the passage from heathenry to Christianity was a bridge, as well as a breach, we owe it to those who kept that heathenry human. If, after all these ages, we are in some sense at peace with paganism, and can think more kindly of our fathers, it is well to remember the things that were, and the things that might have been. For this reason alone, we can take lightly the load of antiquity, and need not shudder at a nymph on a fountain, or a cupid on a valentine." End quote. Okay, I don't know if you picked up on all that, but Chesterton's looking at the Empire of Carthage. And the Carthaginians still sacrifice children. Hannibal, the great general that crosses the Alps, he was supposed to be sacrificed to Baal when he was nine years old. And his name means, by the grace of Baal. Hani, in the Carthaginian language, means by the grace of, or grace of. But instead of being physically sacrificed, Hannibal's father sacrifices his son to forever fight the Romans. And even though the Carthaginian people were just as advanced, if not more advanced, you know, socioeconomically, than the Roman people at that point in time, they were still serving these gods that required human sacrifice. Specifically, sacrifice of human children. And Chesterton's point here is that they were worshipping demons. That these gods were actually demons in disguise, or demons heralding around as gods. Whereas the Romans just had this false god mentality. You know, the Greek pantheon is more of just mythic stories, mythic tales that are hollow rather than practical wrathful gods that require specific things from you and then return specific rewards like winning a battle on the day of a human sacrifice. That's Chesterton's point that in order for Christ to come and turn the world Christian or bring forth the age of the church, he needed to come into a world that was not violently worshipping demons, but only these hollow gods. That's Chesterton's point, and I can understand that's controversial even for the Christian to believe in, let alone, you know, a skeptic who might be listening today. But I belabor this point, and I'm spending a lot of time here, because I don't think the Christian community or any of us, really, whether you're Christian or atheist, we wouldn't give the time of day to magic. We wouldn't give the time of day to charms or amulets or astrology or any of these things. Because we just see it as hocus-pocus fluff that doesn't actually have any power. But what if there was power there? What if, for whatever reason, God did intend for Israel to win that battle against the Moabites, but that human sacrifice empowered Chemosh, however that is possible, to forcibly push back Israel? and thus, in no sense, make God's prophecy not come true. What if that were the case? In contemplating this, I came up with a half-baked fourth option on the table. So, to summarize, our options for understanding this text, our options for understanding how Israel could be pushed back on the battlefield after a human sacrifice. or Option one, the God always actually wanted Israel to fail. Option two that it was cowardice of the Israelites' people after they witnessed this human sacrifice, and/or extra bravery coming forth from the Moabites after witnessing the human sacrifice of the king to be. Option three is that the Moabite god Chemosh fought back and was empowered by the human sacrifice. I now present to you. A fourth option. And this just was something I thought about this morning, and I could be totally, totally off base here. But thought, why not? Throw it out there. (laughs) It doesn't matter, right? No one's going to scourge me for coming up with bad heresy, right? I don't know. We'll see. Fourth option. What if human sacrifice works as a charm? There seems to be an interplay from the beginning of time with sacrifice and God's story. Particularly, there's an interchange between what the world is doing consistently with human sacrifice and what God is doing. God requires animal sacrifices all throughout the New Testament, but he detests human sacrifice. Yet, in Genesis, he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, only stopping him at the last moment. We have sacrifice all the way back in Genesis 3, when it's quite clear that God sacrificed or slaughtered animals to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. And if not then, then surely by Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel are both offering sacrifices to God. And lest one think that sacrifice is just an Old Testament thing, here's Ephesians, an epistle written by the Apostle Paul, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus' offering on the cross, his personal sacrifice, is a fragrant offering to God. Think of that metaphor there, the idea that it is something sweet to God when he is given this sacrifice, this offering. Smells good, it provides pleasure, if one is extracting the metaphor out, to God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan's murdered, or sacrificed as you will, when he returns, he talks about How before the foundation of the world, there was a deeper magic. Deeper than the magic that the White Witch had on display. But foundational creation magic that actually set the rules into play. What if, along with creation, God put in the cosmogony, the the orthodoxy of how the world works, some sort of literal power in sacrifice? And that power could be ascribed to whomever the sacrifice was for. Now, I know that's super freaky to think about, and I don't want you to go slaughter your rabbit in the hopes of getting a new Xbox or something. But what if Mesha's sacrifice of his son in that moment worked like a charm and brought forth power for Mesha and for the Moabites, regardless of who or what or why was actually at play or what force came in, whether there was a real Chemish or there was just a demonic vigilance then, or... The demonic realm was given the keys to push back against Israel. I don't know who or by what, but I almost feel like we have to leave open that possibility that this worked as some sort of magical charm, for lack of a better word. A key that unlocks a power that is not specifically physical, not directed by the laws of the natural world, but by the supernatural world or the mythic world, if you will. I know, I'm going crazy here, but Here is Acts, the book that describes the work of the disciples after the resurrection of Christ. Chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay, this seems to be materialistic power, and that materialistic power is being pushed into real objects. There's a sort of... God-given magic at display here in Paul's ministry? That, as a Christian community, we can't deny that if we're believing the inerrant word of the Bible. So if that can happen for good, could that happen for bad? And is that what's happening here? And could that power be so strong that God, in some way, is thwarted, at least momentarily? Okay, I've gone a long way in this episode to come up with different options here. Because, frankly, when I read these options that God set a trap for the Israelites and he didn't want a diluted victory for the omritic dynasty of Israel. I can't get that from the text. That sounds like rationalizations. So I'm trying to come up with a, a set of principles here or some sort of worldview that allows for 2 Kings chapter 3 to make sense to me. So I don't know, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I'm totally utterly lost in this passage. But this is a strange passage, and so I'll leave you with the question that we're titling this episode. Are the false gods real? This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. Once again, a little postscript here. While talking about human sacrifice as a charm, I think I failed to bring in the possibility that it is an actual law, that there is something of God's law in it. The very first episode we ever did a 365 focused in on why in the world God felt that sacrifice, the shedding of blood, had power, caused the remission of sins. Ephesians one seven says, In him... Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood. Forgiveness comes through Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus himself says as much at the Last Supper. He says, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood is poured out, and the result, the consequences of the pouring out of his blood equals forgiveness of sins. Why? Why is that in place? Maybe God's attached a law to creation in human sacrifice, and maybe the perversity of that, the perverse function of Jesus's sacrifice is on full display in 2nd Kings chapter 3, in Mesha. Maybe. (laughs) So, just so you know... 365 is produced wholly, entirely by me, Dante Stack. You can find show notes at dantestack.com. Please, everybody, keep following us on this train of experimentation and exploration. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 365 questions. Write a review on iTunes. I say this every week, but I still mean it. Go do it. Or, if you don't listen on iTunes, you listen on some app platform, whether that's Stitcher or your direct download from my website, wherever you get it, you can write a review. I guarantee you, it's possible. You can write that review. And if you can't find anywhere to write a review, you can do it on our Facebook page. Also, don't forget, Solve the World, out every Tuesday. Our fictional story told in 100 episodes. It's an audiobook with immersive sound effects and music. As I take you along, week by week, the unfolding story of Jennifer Dash and how she's trying to solve the world before the world ends. Alright, see ya.